Hi, and welcome to this episode of the VFX Show. I'm Mike Seymour, and we are going across the verse, this case, the Spider-Verse, to discuss the 2023 version of Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. I'm joined, uh, as is my pleasure, by Jason Diamond. How are you, Jason? Uh, I'm great. Uh, web slinging through New York with anti-gravity <laughs> cameras. <laughs> uh, Matt, well, and how are you, Matt? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's it's fun to be here. It's, I saw this movie yesterday and yeah, excited to talk about it. I just got back from the US and uh, I had a Saturday off in San Fran before the Apple WWDC thing and nothing else to do. I caught the cable car from um, one end of San Fran to the other and then uh, went to the Museum of Modern Art, went and had a very large margarita and a lovely Mexican lunch and sat in and let uh, the movie wash over me in a Dolby theater in the middle of San Fran. And may mm. I say, you guys do really good cinemas. Those Dolby cinemas, man, yeah. the black levels on those suckers, mm -hmm. the crisp nature, the audio, it's just, yeah, wow, they're great, those suckers. Did you get and the Mike rumble just, seats too? Yeah, I was like, I was, and the thing is, I really needed to have the margarita because this is a film that I just needed to like have, I don't know, some... Uh, some ability to just fall into visually because I don't think I could have fought back against the barrage of visual uh, imagery, which we're about to discuss. But hey, that's my Wait, experience. Real, real fast though, Mike, I just have to weigh in on one minor point, cultural issue that I have to address here for uh, just, you know, and it's a public service uh, as a longtime San Francisco resident and a graduate of San Francisco State University, just for what it's worth, it's it's uh, considered uh, improper to refer to San Francisco as either San Fran or Frisco, and it's preferred that you either call it the city, which I don't think is really appropriate if you're not there, or San Francisco. So I just have to throw that out there because I I know that people sometimes if they are in San Francisco and they hear people say San Fran or Frisco, they'll cringe a little bit. Public okay. service announcement Noted. there Noted. of the snobbery of that, the Bay Area. <laughs> may I say also that your Museum of Modern Art is also uh, really nice. Yeah, nice architecture, museum. nice museum. Um, so I, I appreciate uh, the hospitality <laughs> that. Uh, what, what is the uh, the San Francisco nizzes? I don't know what that is. Um, how do you say someone from San Francisco is a what? A San Franciscan. No, a San Franciscan. San Franciscan. The residents of San Francisco were very nice as well. <laughs> um, and uh, okay, so let's get to the movie. So, like, uh, so I said it washed over me, and I mean that in a good way. It was uh, incredible. So, Matt, what did you think of it? Yeah, you know, I saw, I, of course, I, we did a show on the first Spider Verse film, and I think we were all, I think, pretty equally uh, uh, positive on that film. And I saw that they had made the sequel and my son, who my 19 year old son, who's home from his freshman year of college in Boston, he was like, dad, you got to go see it. You know, he went and saw it and he said it was so great. And he was, he gave it a 9.5 out of 10 <laughs> was wow. his rating. And I was like, all right, I'll, I, I, we're going to do a show on it. I'm going to go see it. So I went and saw it yesterday and, um, I, and he he was saying to me, he's like, I think it's better than the first one, but the ending, he's like, I don't, I didn't like the ending. And um, we can, which we can talk about um, as we get into it. But, I, you know, I was so I was like, OK, I'll go check it out and went to the theater. And uh, I have to agree. I think it I think it might be better on a technical level uh, than the first film. I think there's a, a level of technical achievement that's going on here in terms of some of the things that we can get into and talk about with regards to 
shot design and and the aesthetics and the rendering and what have you um but uh it was great i i really really liked it i think there's some stuff in this that is really powerful it's a uh, the music was really good i think there's a a frenetic chaotic pace to some of it which i guess was in the first one too but i haven't seen that in a while um, I only saw it that one time in the theater, but this was a really exciting follow-up. It feels still, even having seen that first film, it still feels fresh to me as a, a stylistic approach to this kind of storytelling in terms of the the animation, the visual um, decision-making, the kinds of interplay between the different sort of styles and, and um, kind of drawing styles, if you will, uh, the art direction and whatnot. So... It was great. I, I really liked it. I think it was a super fun, fun ride. I mean, Jason, Matt brings up a really interesting point there, right? Because the first one was an animated Spider-Man film, of which we were like, do we need another Spider-Man film? We've already had like at that stage, like three different Spider-Men in the <laughs> current era. Mm -hmm. And it was like, now we're going to have a cartoon version and now they're just milking the shit out of this thing. And it's like, just, I don't, I just didn't see the point. And then we saw what it looked like and we were like, oh my God, that's a breathtakingly fresh approach to animation. So can you judge this one even without, I mean, cause you're seeing it in the shadow of the first one. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with Matt uh, and Thor that the, <laughs> that the uh, um, is better. It's better than the first one. In different ways. Um, and again, sure. to your point, you can't, it's standing on the shoulders of the other one. Like you can't yeah. have, you know, one, without the other so it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a juggle but so you'd you'd agree with me that it's the dark knight of animated films uh yeah or empire strikes back or whatever you want to whatever Godfather you want to say part we'll, two. yeah we'll, we'll see we'll, we'll see what with dark part knight, three that's yeah that was such a good well-directed film yeah hmm. well <laughs> we'll take we'll take uh <laughs> we'll wait for episode or uh or the third you know the 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 continuation of this film into, into the third one uh but um, I, that, uh, we, we can get into specifics. Just my overall take was th the first, I guess it's the first act, but whatever the first Gwen Stacy sequence up until the title sequence was incredible. Like the, just the, the pacing, the momentum, her particular universe's, um, art direction of these abstract watercolor kind of colorways and it didn't feel like you were watching like some psychedelic uh sesame street piece or something you know like it it had its own thing they they really clearly delineated i'll use your nolan reference uh except in a uh, inception manner where they had very clear visual distinctions between the different uh areas or zones universes what have you and the soundtrack was great uh and and my son and I went to see it and then his friends were like, he, he told his friends like, yo, we got to go see it. And they all saw it and they all said afterwards, cause some of them were like, Oh, I don't want to see a Spider-Man movie or I want to see an, I want to see fast and the furious or whatever. And they were all like, yo, we got to listen to Lucas more about movies. Like, man, that was awesome. <laughs> you know, like, so, uh, it, I, you know, I, it, it, there's no way it's not working for everybody. It clearly is, but like, there's something for everybody. If you, if you're not technical, like us old nerds, you know, uh, you can still enjoy it because it's a good story. And, and as a, as a older white person, it's not my story specifically. I've all the other Spider-Man movies have been 
more related to me. Uh, and I appreciate that that Sony, who has not historically been super successful with their comic book films uh, overall, not compared to Marvel, obviously, what they've done. I think I, I appreciate that they specifically are making a, a different viewpoint Spider-Man film. And I know it comes from comics or whatever. You know, I, I don't know the history of Miles Morales and, and where it's being drawn from. But I think it's super, it's really, it's really broadens the scope in a good way. I mean, it got 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, right? And uh, it's generally found like a super uh, valid audience. I guess I'm curious uh, on the age thing, if we could just discuss that for a second. Because there was part of me that was like, this is a film not aimed at me. This was so fast in its visual mm-hmm. uh, sort of pacing and its visual references and its uh, in-jokes and its uh, cultural touchstones. And my, you know, uh, my kids who are like, you know, kind of adults, but they're like um, definitely a lot younger than me, like were eating that up because it was like they could absorb it at such a pace where I kind of felt at some points like it was a machine gun. Not all the time, mind you, not like it was a, like a Michael Bay machine gun, but more like a, when it went into an action sequence, I was like, wait a second, I haven't had a chance to appreciate that before on to the next thing. Um, yeah, I, think I do it, think it was well paced, but yeah. Yeah, I think I think you hit on something there that's interesting about it in terms of the generational potentially generational variants of the experience. Like I, I kind of felt that way too. It, it through the first, maybe the first quarter of the film, like the, the action sequences in particular, where it's just, it's so fast cut and it's, and it's the, the, the sort of bombast of the, the lighting and the imagery and the sort of the graphic sort of splashes and color changes that happen. You know, it's, it's definitely, um, yeah, it's not like uh, your grandpa's Spider-Man, right? It's like it's it feels like it's a really it's a young. I mean, this this sounds this is probably sound kind of lame. This is this, again, it's like me being a you know Generation X, like a fifty. What am I fifty three? I think um, like it's the fifty three year old in me coming out here, but it it felt like like eighties, like kind of hip hop, like you know, or late seventies, like graffiti on the subway, mm-hmm. kind of wild style. Like this, yeah. yeah, like it had this kind of um, intensity and this kind of authenticity. I think in a strange way that really also I think more so even than the first one, I felt like this one really brought it into this comic book universe, like in terms of the aesthetic and the way that they would in panel. Uh, sequences with, you know, separation lines kind of creating this kind of sense of panels and movement through the frame. And then it did do something that I thought was really nice where it would, you know, for grandpa here, it would sort of shift gears and go into this other zone where it 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 was able to find uh, those other lower gears for these really complicated emotive moments that would happen mm-hmm. between whether it was Miles and, and the Gwen character when they first kind of, you know, they're sitting like upside down under the mm-hmm. city and with the city in the background and these kind of beautiful moments where they're sort of holding things back from each other, but they're also kind of sharing and they're happy to be together, but they're also kind of have these other competing interests maybe. And then uh, most prominently, I thought with the mother, there's a great, mm-hmm. uh, a really amazing moment in the film uh, with Miles and his mother where the anim, I mean, I, I feel like I'm going to blow my wad here a little bit, but I feel like this is the thing that really I thought it spoke to me 
on a technical level and a filmmaking level and a visual effects level, animation wise, the scene with Miles and his mother, the animate, the facial animation, the emotive uh, qualities. Is this when that she's come like across. letting him go effectively? Is yeah, that the yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And they're sort mm -hmm. of standing Remarkable. side by side, and the the that you see the characters in profile, but the the subtle movements from the Miles character in reacting to the the kind and loving things that the mother says, little movements in the mouth, the movements in the eyes, mm -hmm. the shifting of the posture, like it feels like a real human physical performance is is being uh articulated in the scene and the way it's animated the way it's lit you know it's kind of got this sort of rim light on the characters faces and it's so good and so uh it's it's hands down some of the best animation i think i've ever seen in scenes like that where the emotion that comes across is really uh it feels uh, theatrical, like it feels like it feels like acting, mm -hmm. you know, like real acting. Well, because I think you're, you're not hiding right. behind the bombast. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, Mark. no, you're right. I was going to say, like, it, yeah, it's. I agree with you. Yeah, and it makes yeah, me think can't... that the bombast then is yeah. like I kind of welcome it because it's sort of like with that. It's got both. It has both those gears, mm -hmm. you know, that low gear and then that crazy high gear and I, the overdrive, you know. And I love seeing mm -hmm. both because then the overdrive too feels like. You know, with the character, the what is it, spot or whatever the spot, mm -hmm. you know, and some yeah. of the crazy uh, opportunities that presents in terms of animation and motion and movement um, and sort of the exaggerated proportions of some of the designs of some of the characters. But yet the still really human kind of movement, you know, it's like I it's really a, as an animation you know, Sony animation, like that's the other thing. It's not just Sony mm -hmm. image works or something. It's or Sony pictures. Yeah, yeah. It's Sony animation. And I mean, they really have consistently produced, I think, really great work over the years. They're kind of this, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, not that they're a little studio, but I feel like they don't often get the cred they deserve because I think what they're doing is really uh, across the board. I mean, you look at all the films they've made going back to like, I can't remember what one of the first ones was, was one of the bug ones, right? And then they did, um, didn't they do one of the bug ones? And then they did the surfs up and stuff. You go back mm -hmm. and look at some of the history of some of the films they've done in the monsters. Ants? House, did they do I ants? Think. I can't, I, I have to go back and look. I or didn't prepare movie for that. Or something but, like that, yeah. But they've done so much great work. And it's like, you know, this yeah. is like the apex of, you know, achievement in my mind for, for that studio in particular. And I think really for that computer generated animation um, genre, I feel like this is really top of the heap. Some stats on the movie. Um, there were like a thousand artists that worked on this, right? Uh, which I, is like one, the largest, <laughs> like one of the largest crews of any animated film. And it ended up being one of the longest animated films, right? At two hours, 20 minutes. That was, uh, I think, the longest American animated film um, to date. Uh, and I, I've got to say, like, for me, the thing that away from the, uh, and I take nothing away from your point about the character animation, which I think was spectacular, but I, I was kind of reminded, you remember, if you've ever like grabbed one of those art of Pixar books, I know this is not a Pixar film, mm -hmm. but you know, you get like an, and it's not necessarily Pixar, but like an art of book, right? And it has all the different concept art, but I'm just thinking about this in terms of Pixar. Quite often, it'll be very different styles that aren't of the Pixar 3D style that somebody's done. Somebody done a watercolor treatment, somebody done a pencils mm -hmm. treatment, whatever. And it's like somebody went, hey, instead of using this concept art just to inspire a single vision of a look, why don't we just animate all the concept art and, mm -hmm. and then we'll just do it on steroids. And so every great emotive 
pastel or cutout or whatever type watercolor, something that somebody might use to express an emotion in concept art was then brought into production as production art. And I just kept on thinking, why did it take this long for somebody to think of this? Because it's such, that stuff is often it's, even better than the film sometimes. I, I mean, sorry, I just have to say like, it's so, it's so perfect that you say that because I feel like mm -hmm. that is what sets the first movie and this movie apart from almost any other animated film that you could see, at least at this level of production, something really big like this, right? I think there are smaller indie animations, you know, shorts that get released in, in animation festivals and stuff that you see that have that really a very illustrative style, right? Where it's not about like photorealism and this, you know, you know, clean render and stuff. It's really about the artist and the gestural nature of the artist's mm -hmm. hand making the mark and trying to find ways, uh, you know, in shader writing to create these kind of systems that allow for, you know, as the uh, it, character and image rotates the normals and all the kind of, you know, facing angles to the camera, you get the kind of uh, appropriate shading and design language, you know, it's, it's a, it's a complicated thing to pursue, I think, but it would, the payoff in terms of that unique stylization and that real sort of signature aesthetic. And I, I think that's a perfect description you make, Mike, like that it's, it really is like, you know, the art of, you know, any of those Pixar books. Like if you've got the art of this movie, it would just be frames from the movie. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. But I, you know, to that point, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but in, 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 I guess the converse to what we're talking about, a lot of other animated movies that are fantastic, and this isn't a judgment on them, is, um, this film and the first film also feel like almost like the adults left the room for a minute and everybody got a chance to like do the stuff everyone would tell them not to yeah. do. And then, you know, like they made half the movie and someone goes, well, it's too late. Let's like keep going. I know that's obviously not what happened, but it, it, because it has such a fresh kind of, and it's not fresh, right? Because it's actually referring to what made comic book movies great, which is comic books. And, you know, I think we got into this cinematic thing that, wanted to take everything so far away from the actual comics, which is fine because they're two different mediums. But I, I really like that this has returned sort of to, to be in like the actual comic book movie in all the different styles and different ways. You have different, different pencilers, different inkers, different colors, different, all the, the great artists that make different books what they are. Uh, to all the way down to like at a certain point, I turn to my kid and I go, are we in the 2D or the 3D screening? Because we didn't get glasses and there's a ton of overprinting oh, yeah. happening in the stuff. And like, and I was like, wait, am I like, like it felt almost uncomfortable slightly to be like, what's happening until I realized like, oh, okay, like maybe they did just use the 3D shots to, <laughs> to, to you know, create the overprinting because it was, I loved it. But it was it was as drastic as the Gwen Stacy verse uh, flat kind of big washes of color, more gestural, suggestive to 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 that what they were doing for that. But for the overprint. But I also loved the stuff with Spot or whatever his name was, the Spot, yeah. Jason Schwartzman, Jason Schwartzman villain, because it was like they took the they took the rules of like Portal uh, and then you know turned him into. Uh, uh, 
a villain, but then his backstory, and when they delve into that and he's just the the, the drawing and like kind of chaotic nature, like it all works so well and it so naturally goes where it should that it feels like no one like second guessed anything. And they were like, no, all of our first instincts are correct. That's what the movie feels like, which is rare. You don't get that a lot, I don't think. Well, and I think we we on this show have talked about how in the Marvel Universe, there is in the recent era, um, you know, stage whatever we're in now, the, the <laughs> engagement with the multiverse is something that I think we've kind of chided a little bit. You know, the three oh, of us is sort of being like, eh, you know, I don't know. But this is, I think, an example of, and the spot character and, you know, uniquely and mm-hmm. talking about Portal, like, I think this, at least these two films so far, I think, you know, are all about the the, the Spider-Verse, the multiverse. Um, but I feel like it kind of is different in a way, like in somehow in the context of the way that this story is told, Spider-Man is, a you know, he's a New Yorker, right? He's a New York kid. Mm-hmm. He lives in Brooklyn and it has this New York kind of Brooklyn, you know, kinetic energy to it. It would be exciting to see some of these other properties uh, explored in a similar um, vein, not with the same kinetic energy that I think maybe really is Brooklyn or maybe Spider-Man or Miles Morales or whatever, but maybe, you know, looking at other of these characters, whether it's the Iron Man or the Thor character or whatever, you know, and like, what would their animated, you know, uh, version of their story look like or feel like given the, Mm -hmm. the, you know, if it were tied somehow to the character, to the place from which the character comes and the world in which that character inhabits, is there a concept art style and an illustrative style that would uh, exemplify those characters in a really interesting way as well, maybe more so than the the kind of cinematic universe that we see. Well, Star Wars does that. The Star Wars does that with the, what is it, Star Wars Visions or whatever, where they do like, uh, and it's all animated, but it's a totally different ones, like an anime, ones of this, ones of that. They have different animation styles across each episode. So it's not, those, but... yeah. Um, uh, or or even like a, you know, a Love, Death and Robots kind of, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. yeah, that's approach, which this, which this is, you know. Yeah, this feels fresh to... like that, like when we did that episode with um, yeah. the, the gentleman from uh, the studio. Uh, whose name escapes me for some reason right now. But uh, So there were 240 different Spider-Men slash Spider-Women throughout the film in apparently six universes, though it felt like more than six to me. Um, I'm going to vote that English punk uh, Spider-Man was my favourite. Yeah, you were saying. Well, see, I did jump in first because I was worried you guys were going to claim it for me. But (laughs) if you you were to point to a favourite Spider-Person, I say Spider-Person because, like, I was kind of, really interested that there was a pregnant spider woman on a motorbike mm-hmm. that was like really interesting for choices and i don't mean that sarcastically i mean it was genuinely an interesting choice yeah yeah um but are there any spiders that jumped out to you as being particularly interesting other than the one that i've renamed i mean i <laughs> loved i uh, i was gonna say i love that everyone keeps focusing on the three spider-men pointing at each other meme like they did it in they did it in no way home or whatever the last Spider-Man yep. was with the three guys. And then in this one, they did it in like gajillion exponential version going through a whole thing of the guy. Oh, yeah. You know, like 400 Spider-Man pointing at each spider people pointing at each other, whatever. Um, I th- I'm trying to remember all of them because I 
saw it a few weeks ago or feels like a few weeks ago maybe it was two weeks ago but um i mean the spider punk uh he really jumped out at me i was like all right that's plus uh the the like poster art nature of his like he was flat almost at times Mm -hmm. yeah but but it's worked so well it was so such a great like to your point matt of or and mike of of concept art like you would totally concept spider punk as a punk flyer collage yeah and then how do you you know and he's got the guitar on him the whole time and the guitar is not cut out properly yeah 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 Yeah, it's the uh it's the god save the queen single color from the sex pistols done as Mm -hmm. a spider verse i mean it's just you can't imagine it any other way um, well, and he's got so, he's got kind of a Hendrix vibe, and there's the whole joke of when yeah, he yeah. he's like, "Wow, you you even look cooler with your mask off," you know, like yeah, yeah. was one of the jokes <laughs> in it. But I I would say too, I mean, I I I mean, just they're the hero characters, but I really liked. Uh, I mean, I think the Miles character is so great. You know, he's just so fun to watch and so compelling as a as a character. I mean, it's his basically his story, mm-hmm. but. But um, and the Gwen character is great. Yeah, the pregnant spider spider woman was uh really something, and I even really like the uh, is it just the Peter character in the robe with the the baby oh, yeah. Bjorn? You know, like it's just kind of a <laughs> funny uh, it's a funny variant on the idea of this Spider Man, and you know, he imparts some kind of cool wisdom too at one point about being like kind of the older schlubby dad spider-man with the baby and stuff and so i think all of those different variants of those characters and there's so many other ones in there too but they they really bring that whole universe to life and it it leads to a lot of interesting opportunities for uh different action beats but also different kind of you know funny you know quips and moments and lines um where they kind of are all learning from each other there's that bit where he says at one point he says you know but i'm spider-man he's like yeah uh, really, you know, like we all are Spider-Man, you know, in essence. <laughs> right. And we have to do a shout out uh, to Preston. Preston is the 14-year-old, at least he was, when he was hired by uh, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller because he did a uh, fully Legoed version of the trailer. Um, and they were like, this kid's so good, we should hire him to actually do a sequence. So the sequence on Earth 13122, the Lego universe one um, was animated by this guy. And if you don't know the story, it's phenomenal. You should go on YouTube and see the video that he did of the um, actual Lego version initially that got him the gig. But uh, I was told there were like great stories of him, like, you know, they're going for revisions on his sequence, which is in, of course, the movie now. And he was like, Hey, we're just wondering, Preston, if you can do a revision on this shot and, you know, this thing. But then he's like, yeah, I just got to finish my homework first. And then after that, I can work <laughs> on the film. That's amazing. Uh, and so they were cool. like, apparently, yeah, uh, Phil Lord and, and Christopher did exactly the right things, of course. But there was apparently some discussion about like, is it even legal to hire a 14 year old kid to work on this <laughs> film? Like, is that like, like child labor? Um, they, of course, did all the right things. But yeah, that these sort of like stories of connecting with the fan base at that level are just gold, right? I mean, that's just. And those sequence, that sequence was great. Like, yeah. Yeah. I was, I turned to my kid and they go, wait, is this from the Lego movie? Like, it was uh, it was on par like you wouldn't like I'm full not that not that I'm not not that I don't think a 14 year old could animate a Lego sequence. It's just not what you comes to your mind. Right. Because you're just all those, oh, those things have I been completely agree. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, you know, how great for him. Right. Like, I mean, just 
God, what a career. Um, where do you go from there though, right? Like must've been a heck of a, uh, a phone call. I think oh, yeah, the thing, sure. the thing in watching the film that I, given that, like you said, it's, you know, two hours, some two hours and 20 minutes long. I mean, it's not, you'd think an animated film like this, you'd be like, well, you know, 90 minutes, that should be good. You know, like, and they really pull out all the stops and they give you like this huge narrative, um, you know, which is a big, uh, a huge amount of work when you say like a thousand people worked on it, it's not at all surprising, but the, um, the thing I was thinking about was the, um, uh, the degree to which, uh, when you look at the sequences as they're laid out throughout the story, mm-hmm. the idea of what it would take to do storyboards or previs mm-hmm. for this layout it, yeah, it sort of was staggering. Like as I was watching it, I, I was having almost like, you know, if, if there was a part <laughs> of me that was imagining working on it, there's this anxiety of thinking like, how do you do this? Like, how do you generate uh, boards and for something like this, that has this much of an explosion of style and aesthetic and changes in style. And um, even from shot to shot, sometimes the style would change and from emotion to emotion, uh, the palette would change and the style would shift. And it's like, I, I don't even know where you would begin i mean it's like a it seems like it's a massive endeavor to do a it, film it absolutely like this. is but i also think they were sensible in um in nailing it to something so if you look at the line thicknesses around the arms and stuff and motions and stuff they tended to be accurate to the period of which they were going for the comic book kind of reference so mm-hmm. they didn't just go anything goes so much as they would go okay so so, you know, this is like of this era. So we're going to like go with that kind of uh, aesthetic and sort of build out from there. And so they grounded each bit. Now, the the correlation of just researching that and then keeping it consistent throughout, um, staggering. And also not making it just like some kind of visual vomit where it's just like um, annoying because you can't see what's going on or that. I guess the thing that I would have been most disappointed in is if it had drifted into that anything's possible so everything goes so nothing is got There's anything. no consequence yeah yeah mm-hmm. you need sort of structure that there is still like this is the laws of this character or this is the laws of this visual style um so you don't want cyberpunk to suddenly become um spider pig in like in the same sort right. of visual representation even though nothing's stopping that right but it's like well, yeah, we have to, in an infinite world, we still want to have a finite number of kind of relatable styles and things. Otherwise, I'm going to Stanley keep track of 240, but otherwise you lose any sense of there being a, a visual thread that underscores the action. An- um, another one of those visual things, I think that I, I don't know if they did, the, I can't remember if they did this in the first one, but that I started to pick up on is, was the halftone. The halftone mm-hmm. kind of, mm. you know, the Lichtenstein kind of, you know, yep. spotting halftone look was happening really in the shadows. And it was right where you were sort of on that line between, you know, light and shadow is where you'd really see it. And then it would kind of disappear some into the shadow and it wouldn't really be very evident on the lighter parts of the image of the character yeah. faces, at least in their bodies. I think there was a lot of it that was happening sort of as graphic detail in some of the big, you know, hero pose action moments and stuff. But and it I felt like too. there was some grain too. It felt like there was a little bit of a grain pass. If I, I mean, maybe I'm just inserting that in my mind, but, and maybe it's, maybe it's registering like the stipple nature of the 
thing, but it, it felt like it had texture. And maybe that's just because of the, because of all the graphic styles. I mean, maybe there's a paper texture. I mean, in the there is texture somewhere. on that basis. I mean, yeah. in, when you talk about yeah. like in, in a grain, I, one of the things that was really fascinating too was the style of the 2D universes that they visited and the 2D character that's sort of in the first act, I think of the film where there's that 2D, maybe in that first action sequence, it's that 2D um, like bird like a big condor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever yep. that thing yeah, the was. Cut out, dragon. The cut out. Yeah, and yeah, it's the, like, it's the... like, what are you doing here? You know, like you're you're 2D. Like, what are you doing in this world? And it we had this mm -hmm. whole kind of totally different aesthetic, like crumpled paper kind of moving around. Well, it was and, Da Vinci, yeah. Yeah, and it, that's right. And in that, there's so much textural um on the the sort of uh the papyrus kind of textural mm -hmm, element yeah. that kind of feels noisy in that way too and i think there i mean i don't know if there is a noise pass on the film but it definitely has moments like that where you do feel like there is there's there's noise texture in sort of the mark making or something almost i also found interesting because in a lot of these movies you know you go for these like um hyper realistic uh, camera and lens solutions to really like model of this, a model of that or whatever, you know, uh, Toy Story 4 and, you know, some really beautiful animation, uh, more photorealistic animation. And in this, I found myself not feeling a camera at all. Like it never felt, uh, while you saw wides and tights, they felt more like frames and less like lenses, lensing in my mind like it, the the there's a lot more planar action happening while it still had pl plenty of depth i don't think at any point i ever felt like lens distortion or lens certainly no chromatic aberration and no lens flares if that well, i can recall chromatic aberration isn't that the the uh misalignment of the, the tonal registration stuff? Yeah. i mean so I, made I, like I, a, I think you is could it focus or is it i think you could argue that stylistically but because actual comics are overprinted that it's it's a the i would think that the impetus is more from the page and the paper than it would be from a lens event at but, least but I, i'd argue like and i'm looking at a shot right now and um yeah spot like spots at the end of the hallway when he's trying to get the atm machine get the money mm -hmm. out of it and so the uh so imagine looking down a a, a, a row of shelves, the shelves being like an alleyway or a hallway kind of effect. Um, mm -hmm. The things that are closer to camera should be out of focus. Now they are out of registration alignment, which gives you the impression that they're out okay. defocused. And yeah. is that a chromatic aberration or is it a defocus? Whatever it is, what it causes you to do is your eye naturally shifts from the, the soft, effectively misaligned uh, RGB, if you want to call it that, to the sharp in the middle of frame down mm -hmm. the the hall of the uh, aisle where it's razor sharp and and bright and cheery and it's like so uh, yeah I mean you can't so I would, right. no go ahead well, so you can't use traditional terms like chromatic aberration in one sense right but but a misalignment of the layers of color is a chromatic aberration and it's something else yes. here but it's I I think I think it's I think it is an ingenious way to suggest a camera lens without falling into the trap of a modeled camera and lens scenario. Because in a comic book, the reason you use 
what you just described is to create a sense of depth of field where you misalign somewhere and it's sharp. Another place, your eye assumes depth. It assumes these things on the page because there's no blurring in comic books, really. Uh, so it feels to me that it's a print technique that informs certainly all of us, our eyes that are used to looking at chromatic aberration, which I love in CG. And I know we talked years ago about, you know, one of the Star Wars films having, you know, like in the glass in the background, then the edges, they bent the light, you know, just enough to make it feel like uh, it was real glass. You know, that I love that stuff. But I think here it feels like it was informed from print. And at least in my opinion, and I just, and I also had the same to back up on what Matt had said. I had the same sort of anxious feeling watching it of like, how would I do this? If someone asked me to <laughs> board this out, I would have a heart attack. Cause like, it's so it they're they're I mean, they're, they're clearly in their methodology had, they have a mode of discovery. They must, right. You can't just ideate yeah. every frame, but I mean, I'm, you actually can, but you know, uh, and I'm sure they did, but, but uh, it is staggering to, to be able to create that amount of editorial um, um, power and momentum in animation at this scale. It's incredibly you, you, impressive. You mentioned uh, when you're talking about the chromatic aberration and sort of the, you know, the offset printing and all that stuff. I think that, I think you guys kind of nailed that in terms of, I, I would agree with what both of you were saying. I think it's correct from what I remember and what I see that, but when you talk about lensing there, there is a lot of, um, you know, lens choices and lensing that's happening in particular mm -hmm. spaces in the film. But it's also like, you know, when you, when you look at a comic, right. And you read the panels of a comic, you know, it's all about, I mean, this is Captain Obvious here, but it's like you're drawing things in perspective and oftentimes in mm -hmm. really exaggerated kind of, you know, almost fisheye perspective to create this sense of motion, this sense of drama, this sense of action, right, happening in the scene. And when I'm just looking at the Sony Pictures uh, Animation.com site for the film, and there's a ton of stills on here. And, you know, there's one of in the beginning of the film where they're in the, I think it's like, a you know, the bodega, right? And mm -hmm. there's the, the spot characters kind of, he's trying to capture him in the bodega. And there's a shot where, you know, it's, it's shot like the cameras on the floor of the bodega looking through the legs of the a spot character at Miles Morales as Spider-Man kind of in mm -hmm. the distance. And there's these kind of, you know, the, the aisles, the vanishing lines of the aisles heading towards the, the front of the store. And it's definitely like, you know, it's a camera, like they've set it up with the camera and they've placed yeah. it down there with all the geometry. And so they're really thinking about it in a cinematic way, but also through this kind of, comic veneer right so everything has this kind of dual uh purpose and dual flavor and i think you see in some of the action scenes a kind of exaggeration or even like where they they'll take when when they're sort of flying through different parts of uh the india uh location the kind of india mm -hmm. new york or which is amazing mumbai, mumbai, mumbai or something Something yeah, like that. and uh, that was yeah. a great Spider-Man too. Actually, I forgot about that guy. But when you're seeing that city, and you're seeing them sort of web sling above the city, it has you know lensing, but it it feel everything feels flatter. Like it feels more drawn. It feels more like a real mm -hmm. comic graphic. But the 
the dimensionality of the shots come from you know the action poses of the characters the sort of exaggerated yeah. arms and whatever coming towards it's uh, planar it feels like an animation stand but like on steroids yeah now i don't mean that in a bad way it's just that's what i meant by like not feeling the camera like obviously there's a camera like right. it's photographing what's happening just like a a uh, artist who's drawing a, a frame is is setting a frame for through the lens of their brain but in this case I think it was more to illustrate that the camera is respecting the the planar nature of what you clearly get in a comic book. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Than than the traditional CG rounder, uh, for lack of a better description, rounder photographic um, feel. Yeah, it's like what your mind does as a kid when you're going panel mm -hmm. to panel. You know, you yeah. sort of imagine these things moving as a child, you know, when you're reading these comics or as a, you know, arrested development adult, I suppose. But, um, you know, when you watch this in, in action in the film, that's why I think it works so well. It really is. It feels like a continuous. If you've ever read a comic and then you go see this film, it feels like it's that medium uh, in a just a slightly different yeah, at, at, yeah, it's that medium at 24 frames per second or whatever. One of the things that I thought was interesting uh, in the environments is, you know, we discussed a moment ago the whole idea of it being like the concept art for the emotional ties. But in looking at the environments, it felt like it was old school matte painting in the sense that when I would look at the picture, I would go, oh, yeah, that's like a futuristic city with a whole lot of Batman's, uh, Spider-Man's pointing at each other, right? But then when I look at it in detail, it's like, that's actually just kind of a couple of brushstrokes that indicate that that is a person, but actually there's no detail here. This is not like 3D rendered where it's got all this detail and it's just, you can't see it because there aren't enough pixels. Mm -hmm. This is just like a, a squiggle of a line that indicates something. And in some cases, like an environment doesn't even get finished. It just has a couple of, you know, pen strokes over to one side to kind of indicate, oh yeah, that's where the rest of that wall would be. But just like old school matte paintings, you take in the holistic version and it feels like it has super high resolution detail. You look at any one part of it and you go, actually, that doesn't have much detail at all. Uh, and that was always what I loved about glass matte paintings. I don't know if you guys agree. Mm -hmm. you, seem to be, you seem to be nodding. I love that uh, you bring that up. I've been fully, working on it. Fully agree. I've been working on a project with a friend of mine for the last month or so now, I guess, where we're talking about old school matte paintings on glass and the thing about them, just as you describe, is that very thing of, you know, when you see any of those up close, if you've ever had the opportunity, to, which I think we mm -hmm. all have seen some of those in person, yeah, they're, they don't look real. And what makes yeah. them, they're, they're very impressionistic, right? And what makes them look real in the sort of olden times of optical uh, printing was really just that film grain, right? And that film grain sort of seeding things together in the way that everything's balanced in the optical, like it, they wind up looking believable or, so, or, you know, at least, you know, somewhat believable. And I think this does have that aesthetic in the, like looking at some of these shots of, you know, the, the Manhattan from the Brooklyn rooftops, like it's very like mm -hmm. loose, you know, it's not a really tight uh, rendering of that background. It's got this real loose kind of gestural quality that really does feel a lot like that. I think that's a great insight. It, it must be, um, uh, as you say, like incredibly hard to put it together. It also must be incredibly hard to know when to stop putting it together. Like, <laughs> yeah. Because I do feel like you can tip over a point where 
uh, so you've, we've all done this, right? We've been in a film where there's a sequence where you kind of just lose track of what's going on and you're like, you know, in a second, they'll finish this action sequence and then I'll get back to like the story. And maybe it's a fight sequence, you know, and it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, you know, like A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, whatever. And then it'll finish soon. And I've kind of lost track of where they are in the building or whatever, but do I care? I didn't get that sense here. I didn't, you know, I mean, I said the film washed over me a bit, but it wasn't just like, okay, when we finish this fight sequence in futuristic Mumbai, whatever it is, then I'll get back to the story. Um, that can even happen in like a Bond film where you get like a, you know, an action sequence that just feels like it's a set piece dropped in that we have to have. Uh, and avoiding that, I think, is like a real, uh, a real trick because, you know, obviously when they're chasing, being chased by bunches of other Spider-Men, it could have fallen that way. Like, okay, now we're going to have a show-off sequence or a fight with Spot where, okay, I get the portal idea. Now we're just going to play that gag for a bit. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen. I think, I, I think the thing that saves that saves Spider-Man always from things like that or tries to is that Spider-Man doesn't shut up. And <laughs> it's his snarky kind of New York, at least in uh, uh, traditional Spider-Man, Queens, Astoria kind of like, you know, snarky dialogue, Brooklyn in this case, they're always talking. And so Gwen Stacy's talking, Spider-Gwen is talking, Peter's talking, Spot's talking. They're all talking the whole time during the fight scene. So you're getting this um, double narrative. You're getting the action narrative of where they are in space and where you think they're going and that sort of momentum. And then they're just literally having dialogue that isn't about the fight. It's their like having an emotional conversation about like Spot being like, you did this to me and then blah, blah, blah. And then this happened and whatever, but they're fighting at the same time. And that's very hard to pull off. Yeah. I mean, they're talking the whole movie. They're talking. And And I I think, think, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I I was just going to say the other thing I think that makes it work, uh, you know, kind of maybe uh, in the way that you're talking about, Mike, like that kind of steers clear of that along with what you're mentioning, Jason, is this idea that because we're moving through these different Spider-Verse places, stylistically, we're seeing things change. And as things change, we're sort of break out of that. Uh, the, if there were, the, there's no visual monotony that can happen because right. it's changing stylistically. Like when we're in the universe of, you know, Miles's uh, Brooklyn, you know, the rendering of those characters the backgrounds still kind of have that kind of faint, but they're a little bit more real. The colors are a little bit more saturated mm-hmm. and a little bit more um, realistic, I think, in terms of the color palette. And then the way in which those characters are animated, the way they move, the way they're lit, they're much more, for lack of a better term, like they feel more 3D, they're more dimensional mm-hmm. kind of. And I think that that also kind of breaks any... Um, yeah, you never feel like you're stuck in one palette because it continuously feels like even the characters, that's that's the other thing that's so challenging, I would think about this film is getting these different characters from these different universes to mm-hmm. interplay with one another where you have these conflicting styles, but they're somehow able to holistically kind of integrate them into the same universe, regardless of which universe they happen to be in, which I think is another really fascinating uh kind of achievement that this movie has on an art direction level, you know, and execution Let me ask you this, in terms of just, CG. Just changing the narrative for a second for us. If we've if we're over multiverse 
and metaverses and the whole versus thing. Yeah. And yet we've had two successful films in that area. One is everything everywhere all at once. Mm-hmm. And this one, like, have they now sort of owned that ground so well that it'd be really hard to come up with a Dr. Strange type multiverse that actually works? Like, in other words, is the uh, idea kind of worn out now because they've done it so well in two very, very different ways? I think the key to both of the examples you gave and why they work is a combination of heart and absurdity. And Doctor Strange, while I did not see it, Marvel films do not typically contain that when they're dealing with, I mean, they all have heart and they all have characters you care about and they all have humor, but there is an absurd, I mean, we can all agree and I love the Daniels to death and I love everything everywhere to death. There is a huge level of absurdity in that film that stops you from questioning uh, reality or how does this work or the mechanics of what's happening because they've they've been like hey w- w- just like give us a second like we've we've thought about it just let us show you our mechanics and I think it's the same with the Spider-Verse you know they're like we have like simply by having the like one main razor clawed Spider-Man who doesn't shoot webs you know uh who controls everything, we see a control structure. He's saying who's in, who's out. And so we see a mechanism of control. And then there's a fight against that control with Gwen, who sort of breaks out and her trying to get Miles and all that. So there is a structure, but at the same time, there's a chaoticness enough to it where it makes sense and an absurdity because you have Spot who can do all these things. And then you have like really great dialogue and um, humor I think there is just a little magic combination there that makes those two particular properties work. Um, well, maybe it's even are, too that it's a hard. better, it's a clearer story and the well, stakes are more clearly defined. I feel like, I yeah. mean, you know, just, it's a good question. I think about, you know, whether or not does the multiverse, you know, have they cracked the code of making a successful multiverse movie? I mean, it works for the, this film. I agree. I think it worked for, you know, the hot dog fingers and the rocks and stuff or whatever in the everything everywhere all at once. But I, I don't think it works as well in, you know, the, I think it was this third or second, the second Thor movie where they're moving from one place to another and, or the, um, the Dr. Strange films, the kind of some of the multiverse. Ant- oh yeah. Ant-Man. I feel like oh, in one of the Thor movies, movie. they were moving yeah. through portals and stuff. I, I, maybe I'm remembering it wrong. They all kind of blur together, but, but the, um, Ow, just that. that that is an indictment right there <laughs> well no just that like i think the the stakes you know at a certain point in some of those films they just don't feel as high emotionally psychologically from a story point like you know they're mm-hmm. they're following a, a something that was written they're they're diverging somewhat from a, a comic something that's canonical or whatever i'm sure right and then they're moving into this other space and creating this kind of photorealistic rendering of this thing and i you know maybe it comes down to script and maybe it comes down to you know directors you know art directors stylized choices like in terms of what works and what doesn't but yeah i don't know, I don't know. They, they don't we, seem don't, the same to me at all i don't need any more multiverse movies i need a good no i'm not saying we do yeah. something <laughs> like that just don't need a good, barbie barbie maybe a good barbie yeah that's all party <laughs> um i just don't know that i mean i think it's so hard now to do a really good uh, multiverse film that would stack up against these two that we've just referenced, which are so themselves visually different, but um, 
yeah. Anyway, that's my my two cents. Hey, like we're kind of running out of time, so let me just wrap up by saying, do we feel like the third one, if it just is part two of this one, would be a letdown? Do they have to go somewhere else? Do they? I mean, there are some obvious gags they could do in the third film. For example, introducing you know the actors from the current Spider-Man franchise, for example, which would be you know some good in jokes and stuff. But I'm leaving aside that kind of level of stuff. If it's just the second half of this film, would that be okay? Or do we need it to go somewhere else in the third film? I mean, I think the interesting thing they've set up in the story that I'm really curious to see is kind of what I was just talking about. Like it's this idea of canon, you know, which is kind of funny because, right, it's playing into this universe of, you know, fandom. And you could even sort of think about it as some of the toxic fandom too that exists out there. Like, and they're sort of playing with this idea that canon says that Spider-Man has to Mm -hmm. have all these things happen. Right. And the Miles Morales character is fighting against that idea and saying like, no, this doesn't have to happen. My dad doesn't have to die or whatever. You know, that's, that's ridiculous, you know, like, and it's sort of cracking, trying to crack that, uh, mindset and say like, well, you know, you can, uh, take a historical kind of character that has this massive library of this kind of backstory and narrative, and maybe you can break away from it and create something that's new and fresh, right? I mean, I think that's kind of the debate around some of these kinds of franchise movies. And it's cool to have that be a thematic element of the film. If it answers those questions and goes into some area where you know, you would think it's going to wind up being the case that, of course, it doesn't have to be canon, you know, like it can change and you can be the ruler of your own destiny or whatever it is. And I think that that would be great fun. I mean, I think you would have on your hands a totally unique and likely highly successful trilogy of films, these Spider-Verse films with the Miles Morales character and the surrounding uh, characters in that narrative that would, you know, be a pretty iconic and, you know, top uh, of the genre of comic book movies. You know, it'll they, it'll be hard to top. It's so unique and different. Mm. Jason? I mean, I agree. I, I mean, to your point about canon, they go so far as to be like, look, all of our Uncle Ben's have died, except yeah. for you don't have an Uncle Ben. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's an <laughs> so interesting silly. thing. Uh, but from, a, from an execution standpoint, I, I don't, you know, I feel like from one to two, it's gone like 50% more, right? I don't think they need to go another 50%. I think they can continue because it's a direct continuation and not just a sequel at some later point in time, in its timeline. It has to maintain some continuity because we're kind of going to pick up right where it left off. Um, But I would expect that there will be a climax or there will be some maybe end of act two or something where it's like, there's another kind of like, whoa, that was cool kind of thing for story reasons and for art direction and other things. But it's, I mean, we're going to get to spot doing something at some point, he's going to have to implode, explode, or, you know, be defeated or, or almost be defeated or whatever it is. And because of his sort of uh, multiversal, personal multiversal portal ish nature, there's some pretty interesting things to 
I think explore there, but well, from from the I mean, technology point of view, in terms of the visual effects and the execution of the animation and mm-hmm. the, the technology that's being deployed, it kind of makes me think of the conversations that I know we've had like over the years now about like you know looking at Toy Story, the Toy Story franchise, right? Mm-hmm. And the way in which if you go back and look at the original Toy Story, like it's you know at the time it was a marvel, right? And you look at it now and you think like, wow, like I you know we can do that in class like pretty easily, you know, yeah. like <laughs> and the the transition of the technology and the sophistication of the rendering techniques, the lighting, the you know the animation, everything, right, becomes so much more sophisticated with each successive film. And I think what's exciting about this approach of storytelling, aesthetics, um, uh, and the kind of yeah, the universe they're building the, and what it looks like. This film is clearly more sophisticated on a technological level than the first one. And it will really, I think it'll be really exciting. You know, the story I'm sure will, will, if they keep in this zone, it should be pretty great, right? But I think the technology piece will be really fun to see too. Like, can they take this concept and this idea aesthetically and push it even further to a whole nother level? I think that would be fun to be to fair see. though. To be fair, though, I believe the third piece comes out next year. So it well, feels like it's one of those piggybacked ones where they're going to be working on it sort of at the same time. So as opposed to this one that had like what, like five years? Look at how fast things are changing every oh, I, week. Oh, I so, know. You know. Oh, I know. I'm just saying, you know. A little you know, bit of AI style transfer going on there, I think. Yes, yeah, that's what I'm hearing. Could be. Hey, we got we got to wrap it up. Um, so... Uh, if they do do those things, we'll be here to do a VFX show about them. But, but quickly, because uh, we do want to wrap up. Hey, Jason, where can people uh, find you? Where's the good place to work out what you're up to? Uh, Jason Diamond, everywhere you can type that into a social media <laughs> app. And uh, uh, the Diamond Bros and Zero Space. Excellent. And Matt? Uh, I'm on mastodon.social, Matt Wallen, and uh, LinkedIn. Uh, and yeah, uh, on the 8111 podcast, I've got a few new ones coming out in the next few weeks. So brilliant, brilliant, which is of course, Matt's, uh, look at, uh, the people behind, uh, ILM, which is totally recommend that podcast. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, and I, I'm Mike Seymour and I can, you can find me in most places, but obviously, uh, at FX guide guys, it's been terrific talking with you. Um, I was a little worried, like when we were talking about this film, I'd be like, well, it's great. We all go, it's great. It's all great. It's great. And every shot's visual effects. What do we say after that? So we've actually found more than enough to discuss. Uh, and I'm glad we've had so much fun with it. Uh, we do have some films coming up, which we'll have to decide whether we're going to cover or not, not least of which is, uh, Indiana Jones, the fifth, is it the fifth version? And, uh, yeah. And uh, then there's uh, all sorts of other sequels of sequels of sequels, like the, is it the ninth or the tenth Transformers film, and the oh and I don't the, know, and the uh, certainly the tenth uh, Fast and Furious and stuff. I don't know, but if you want us to do something, uh, please email us or uh, ping us, and we'd uh, love to hear your thoughts, what you want to see, as people did for this film. But that's it for us for this time. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show, and thank you guys so much for listening. Until next time, see you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.